And this morning we're going to talk under the theme, a church worth talking about, under the theme of Antioch, we're going to talk about soaked in grace. And I just want to say to you, do not say, this is familiar, oh dear, just heard it all before. This is not a subject like that. This summer, I myself found God spoke to me a couple of times quite clearly on this subject. I was doing some reading for the latest sort of uh, hot potato talk on the atonement, which is coming up in October, and I felt God really spoke personally to me, affecting me, worshipping the Lord, just touching my heart about the amazing grace of the gospel and what Jesus has done for us. And so please don't allow familiarity to hint at breeding contempt in your mind. In fact, you need to hear it. I say that utter confidence. You need to hear this this morning. If you're not a Christian, you really do need to hear what it's all about. But most of us probably are believers, but you need this. You need to live in this. You need to be soaked in it. Now, just as a way of introduction, we will read again the verses about Antioch. Look for verse 23 of Acts 11, which is the sort of key verse I want to talk about. And we're we're obviously not going to do an exposition on Acts 11, because we're using it as a basis for talking about the features of this dynamic church at Antioch. And one of them was certainly soaked in the grace of God. So, Acts 11, and uh, let's start reading at verse 19. As I say, the key verse that I'll be talking about is 23. We'll get to that in a moment. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, When he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. News reached Jerusalem, this vibrant new church that was developing in Antioch and growing. And Barnabas was sent to assess what was being built and what even was going on, really, at Antioch. When he got there, it says he was glad and he was encouraged because he saw the evidence of the grace of God. Apparently, literally, that would be translated, when he had come and seen the grace of God. He saw the grace of God. Now, you know, we know this, we're familiar with the Bible, we're familiar with the word grace, so we can just, that washes over our heads. But let's stop for a moment and say, Barnabas saw something. He saw tangible evidence. He he saw manifestation of the grace of God at Antioch. This is not some polite thing. This was very, very important. Is this a genuine work of God? Is this the gospel? Is this about Jesus? Or is it some horrible aberration? What is going on at Antioch? He gets there and he says, no, this is the grace of God. I can see it. I can see it all over them. He saw evidence of the grace of God. This was a church soaked in grace. It was a grace church. They'd embraced the gospel, the proper, full-on gospel of God's grace, and this was a work of God. So what did Barnabas see at Antioch? 
talked about that once before, but I want to talk about it from a slightly different emphasis this morning. What did he see? What does a church soaked in grace look like? And if Barnabas turned up here, would he be equally encouraged and glad and say, wow, I can see the evidence of grace. I see you've got it. I see you understand it. I see you know the gospel. I see the grace of God all over you. I can see it. Now, he obviously talked to people. It wasn't a fleeting visit. He didn't just come for one uh, hour meeting or something, a couple of hours meeting and whisk off again. He lived there, but quite quickly he was very clear that the grace of God had taken root in their lives and was affecting them. So what is it we're talking about? Now, first of all, I think it's genuinely right for us and a very useful exercise to, to pause and say, let's look at this subject of grace, because we've got to understand it. We've got to have it deep in us that it might come out and affect our lives. Now, what we're going to do in the next few minutes is not merely, or even firstly, an intellectual exercise. It's not just about understanding slightly tricky concepts. It's far, far more fundamental than that. When I'm going through some of the scriptures in the next few minutes, you need to have your eyes and ears open, but your spirit open, and see it in your heart. See it in your spirit. Something engage with you. And you think, I see it. I can remember times in my life when that's happened. There's many of them, actually, with the Word of God. But one that stands out, even as I talk about this subject, is as a relatively young Christian, late teens or something, for the first time, really looking at Romans 6 with new eyes. Well, I didn't have new I just looked at it. I was reading it. I'd been reading a book on it by a man called Watchman Nee. I began to dabble a bit in another book by a man called Martin Lloyd-Jones. Doesn't matter. Those men had explained things, but hadn't really clicked. I was trying to understand it in my head. And I was only reading the Bible. Only, he says. But you know what I mean? I wasn't reading a book about it. Reading Romans 6. And it suddenly hit me. I see this I now have been changed. It's not about what I do, it's about what Jesus has done. I don't, I don't any longer have to be submitted to sin and obey sin because I no longer belong to that old master. I belong to Jesus. Now, it really clicked. There was another incident within a few years, actually, probably I was about 21, 22, when I was reading the Garden of Gethsemane scriptures. I'd read them hundreds of times. I certainly heard them hundreds of times because the sort of church I was brought up in called Open Brethren broke bread every Sunday morning and often people would read those sort of scriptures. Fine. But I, I mean, it never, ever, ever affected me. Never made me get anywhere near to weeping. It had done nothing but go into my head and I, I... Computed yet, I understand Jesus was in agony in the garden and praying. But I was reading it on my own and it suddenly hit me, Jesus didn't want to go to the cross. It's almost obvious. But no, it hit me. It was agony to him. It was a dreadful thing. He was, he was, he was recoiling from bearing sin, but he did it because he loved me. And what was making him so distressed was my sin. And what I'd done wrong, and, and his knowledge, Jesus' knowledge, of what a holy God would look, think of my sin. I just saw myself in it. It's ridiculous to say, well, why didn't you see that before? Well, I didn't. And as I was reading it, it clicked. And I began weeping. I began weeping. This was for me. Jesus died for me. Now, this sort of thing happens with truth. It's not about 
intellectual grasp. That's helpful. It's part of the mechanism of being a human being. But it's about something clicking in your spirit. You get it. And there's revelation. Now we need that about grace. This is a fundamental truth. Let's just get into the subject fairly quickly. But we need to. Many people will say to you, say to me, I've heard it said to me, had it said to me many times, all religions are the same. People out there will say, all religions are the same. Other people, and Marianne had this said to her only this week by one or two non-Christian friends, will say, religion is responsible for the trouble in the world. You had that said to you this week, didn't you? Religion is responsible for all the trouble in the world. That's, these two things are quite common comments you'll come across, if you, I'm sure, all have probably. Now, I want to say, in some ways, I sympathise with both those views. I actually almost agree with them. If you're not a Christian here this morning, I want you to hear me. I'm not just making that up. I sympathise with both those views. The first one, all religions are the same. Actually, despite the many apparent differences... There, are, there is really one major way in which all religions are pretty nearly the same. Because all religion is about human effort. It's about law keeping. Every religion, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, modern cults like Jehovah Witnesses, and even Christianity in its traditional religious guise, which is often the way it's most often presented, All of these religions are essentially religions of law, that if you follow procedures and rituals, if you keep laws, if you do this, you do that, you'll get nearer to the divine. You'll please God. The do's and the don'ts line up with how successful you are in getting close to God or nearer to the divine or whatever. And I would include New Age religions in this. I'm just, they, all religions are sort of the same. And people say, Religion is responsible for most of the trouble in the world. Well, there are noble exceptions, but religious people can be amongst the nastiest people on the planet. Religious people are the nastiest often on the planet. Just take a random example. Think of that chap in Florida, the Christian pastor, going to burn the Koran just to wind everybody up. What's he doing? What's it about? going to burn the Quran and do this there. But then look at the reaction. Look at the Islamists. Burning flags, stamping on posters, threatening to kill people in Pakistan and many other countries. Right in the middle of all the other things they're coping with. They've got time to go out and threaten to kill this one and that one and blow up every you know, soldier near them just because he's going to burn the Quran. When you look at that, people look at that rightly, or they look at Northern Ireland, they rightly say religion creates problems. Well, religion does. It makes people nasty. Because all forms of religion, which I'm talking about, man's attempts to get right with God and to reach God, are based on this driven striving thing. And do you know it breeds this incredible mixture. Religion, religion breeds an incredible mixture of fear and pride. Doesn't it? It does. Fear and pride. Or paranoia and pomposity. It is. It breeds it. Or cruelty and insecurity. That is what religion does. All religion. Now, there, only, there is only one 
dictionary type definition of religion, one religion in the world that won't do that. I don't even like using the word religion for it. That is biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is different from all religion. In fact, as I say, I wouldn't call it that. I'd call it a life, I'd call it a kingdom. I understand the word religion is in the dictionary. But actually, biblical Christianity is radically different. Pure, undiluted Christianity speaks of a loving, accepting God who reached down to us, initiated the whole thing from heaven, and offers us forgiveness and life. The New Testament Gospel is the good news of the grace of God. It does not emphasise what we have to do for God, but what God has already done for us. That's what it's all about. That's what it's all fundamentally built on. The most powerful, life-changing truth in the world is the message of God's unconditional love and acceptance in Jesus Christ. Of us, of any sinner, in Christ. Unconditional love and acceptance in Christ. What's wrong with the religion of law? Because actually people in the end ask you that when you push this point. Because they they realise you're saying something very different. They eventually get it. What's wrong with the religions of law? Very briefly, I want to explain it. The best religion of law, the best one, is the Mosaic Covenant in the Old Testament in our Bibles. I say it's the best one because it's God's one. It's the only one that makes any sense, actually. That's God's law, the Mosaic Covenant. But essentially it is a religion of law. The law covenant which God gave to Israel through Moses. The Bible, the Bible describes that religion of law as, I quote Hebrews 7 verse 8, weak and useless. So God himself says about his own religion of law, it is weak and useless. And useless. Why does he say that? Well, actually, the law isn't weak in itself. It is perfect and holy. But if it's going to get us to God, if it's going to make us holy, it depends on our human effort, our ability to fulfil it and do what is required of us. And really, you and I are weak and useless. So the law becomes weak and useless because it relies on a weak and useless element. You and me. You say, you're calling me weak and useless. I am. Hear my words. Watch my lips. You are weak and useless. Every last one of you in this room, however you think you aren't, you are weak and useless. When it comes to getting holy, when it comes to getting near to God, you and every other man and woman on the planet are weak and useless. Why? Because there doesn't dwell in your self, in your flesh, enough virtue to fulfil God's law. There's no good thing in you. That doesn't mean that everything you do is bad or everything everybody does is bad. Not at all. But it means that everything is polluted and tainted and spoiled. And it's obvious to us, really, when we look around. We can see that even the most glorious acts of heroism or self-sacrifice are often tainted or mixed in with pride and selfishness and rivalry and, and all sorts of things. Envy and lust and greed and hatred and unbelief. And all these things get mingled in with our lives. It's like it's all got a bit of pollution. It's all a bit tainted. The Bible calls it sin. We are sinners. 
We have a sinful nature. I believe the biblical view of human beings is the most sensible, streetwise philosophy in the world. It makes sense. You look at every other view, including the ludicrous view that our culture has that everybody's fundamentally good, and if you only treat them well, they'd all be angels, and educate them properly and give them a clean house. It's just rubbish. Christianity is makes sense, which is this. Not everything everybody does is evil, but they all have sin. They're all tainted with this inner thing, not just the... I mean, it's not everybody's a murderer or a robber, but this, this fundamental flaw of sin that brings pride and lust and envy and greed and hatred and fear and unbelief to the surface so often. There is something wrong with us, all of us. If we're ever going to be saved from our sin and its consequences, reconciled to a holy God, changed, he had to do something. That's the gospel. And he did. He gave his son, Jesus Christ, as a sin offering to deal with sin, remove it once and for all, and make a changed life possible for you and me, and give eternal life as a gift to you and me. And actually, it's glorious, isn't it? And the Bible, the New Testament, often talks about God giving. This is what grace is about. It's God giving, giving, giving. Let me give you three examples. I think we've got them all up and running. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Just look at the words. What is it? The eternal life? It's what? The gift of God. Look at 1 Corinthians 2.12. We have not received the spirit of the world. This is speaking as a Christian now. But the spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. The Christian faith is about what God has freely given you. No strings attached, no conditional clauses, no small print. If you're in Christ, you've got wonderful, wonderful promises. In him are all the promises of God. Yes and amen. We get it all in him. He's freely given it to us. Let's look at Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? I put that, it's up there, isn't it? Let that be a defiant challenge to every one of you this morning. Do you believe that or not? I believe it. That he who gave us his son, will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? It all comes. This is the spirit of God. This is his amazing grace. We sing about amazing grace. This is what it is. To be saved by grace means we are saved by the love-inspired actions of God, not by our own efforts. Someone has correctly defined grace as this. Something for nothing for those who don't deserve anything. Something for nothing for those who don't deserve anything. Grace is God's unlimited supply of mercy and forgiveness in and through Jesus Christ. That is it. He is the gift, and with him all the rest comes. We need humility and faith to take this wonderful free gift of Jesus, just as I am without one plea, but that your blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God, I come. That's how you come. Just as I am without one plea, but that your blood was shed for me, 
O Lamb of God, I come. Is that how you come? Is that how you live? Do you remember that? You've been a Christian 30 years. I've been a Christian 40-something years. You need to remember it. That's how you live. But that your blood was shed for me. Oh, my God, I come. Thank you, Jesus. Someone says, well, hang on a minute, John. Isn't your life supposed to change when you become a Christian? Don't you have to live differently? You do change, but not because you have to follow a new set of rules. That's not why you change. The grace of God, you see, is not an idea, it's a presence. It's the tangible, subjective, experiential reality of God entering your life. The Spirit of Jesus comes into you. When you grasp this, when you embrace it, when you say, just as I am, Lord, I come by your blood. And you mean it. You say, thank you, Jesus. Jesus, The Holy Spirit, actually, comes into you. The Spirit of Christ. And he lives in you. And he brings you alive on the inside. And from the inside out, he begins to change you. Totally out of relationship with himself. You will never understand the changed life until you understand the exchanged life. Got that? You won't understand the changed life. How does it all change? How does it work? You don't understand that until you understand the exchanged, EX, exchanged life. Christianity is not a self improvement program, it is not a reformation project, it's a resurrection. It's a new life. It's an exchange of identity. A great exchange. You become one with Christ. All that he has becomes yours. All that you have becomes his. Do you know, this is one of the areas I felt God really impacted me when I was reading over the summer. You know the whole thing, you'll hear more about it on the atonement talk if you come along, but you know the idea of penal substitution? It can be a little strange and odd to us sometimes. Some of you probably have got this bit I'm going to share with you, but I took me 40 years to get it. But, but it can be a little strange, you know, if, um, I'm looking around for a cast in my eye, it, you know, if, if the theory is that someone, um, I, I'm not going to embarrass anybody here, but uh, someone I don't know, and I can see, I'm not going to ask you to stand up or anything, a gentleman in the grey t-shirt there, who I don't know, I'm sure he's a great guy, if, if you say, well John, you have a huge debt, and you, you really owe this, and you're an absolute you know, villain, you should, you, 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 it's, a, it's a bad debt, but we're actually going to go to the guy in the green, grey t-shirt, you don't have a clue who he is, and we're going to take the money off him, actually. And when we've done that, you'll be free. I said, thanks, it's a lovely debt. Now, it, there's, there's, something, there's something okay about that at one level, but there's something unsatisfactory. Quite, how does this work? Jesus bore my sin on the cross, and I sort of go free. Uh, it's wonderful, but it's like almost like, how does it quite work? You need to understand, as I need to understand, we are one with Christ. It's a lot more close and fundamental than that. Without any insult to you, we'll now turn to this beautiful lady in the front. Sorry, Marion. And you don't have to say that, I know, but we're going to turn to you anyway. Marion has a huge debt. She doesn't now, but she had, let's assume, Marion has a huge debt. I love Marion, and I marry her. Marion becomes my wife. I now have her debt. It's our debt. 
But out of my resources, I pay off Marion's debt and my resources completely removed Marion's debt. We became one and as she was one with me, I took her debt. This is our debt. Now, out of my resources, I pay off Marion's debt. She's debt free. We, together, are debt free. And she now, having taken my name, also takes my resources and I have more than enough, not only to pay off her debt, but to give her a totally different lifestyle. Now, that's, they're all analogies, but that's nearer to what Jesus does. It's all limited, human. You don't, it's not some distant thing. You are in Christ. You died in him. You rose again. Jesus took your sin and burdens and failures and weakness and you get his holiness and righteousness. Let's look at one verse you very famously, I've used it many times. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This was a grace-motivated... Actually, for those of you who know a little bit about theology, this will be further back than the cross. You were in Christ before the foundation of the world. Now that, God can do stuff that you and I can't dream of. He's outside of time and space. He didn't plod back through history 22,000 years to deal with your sin. It's all now to God. He's the great I am. Everything happens at once to God. Good job it's God. I think I get a bit stressed. I mean, this is me using human terminology. But actually, don't be baffled. Receive the truth. When Jesus died, he paid your debt. Not in some distant legalistic transaction, but out of a love union in him. Amen? When he died, you died. When he paid the debt, your debt was paid. Now, his resources are available for you. When you understand this and the the union you have with Jesus Christ, when you understand what it is to be in the grace of God, it means to be in Jesus. And Jesus is in me. And who touches me touches Jesus. And all he has, I have. And all I had and have is his. His He is mine and I am his. It's wonderful. And with it, I have peace with God. We're not going to look at all these scriptures. Romans 5.1 I am safe from God's wrath. Romans 5.9 I have been freed from all condemnation. Romans 8.1 We have been made perfect forever. Hebrews 10.14 Made perfect forever. You? Yeah, you. Me? Yeah, me. Made perfect forever. You have been made complete. Colossians 2, 10, 9 and 10. We are sons of God, all of us, male and female. We're coming to his sonship. We co-heirs with Christ, joint heirs with Christ. Galatians 4, verses 4 to 7. We are made citizens of heaven. Philippians 3, verse 20. And there is much more. Now, if by grace you have experienced that, you will show evidence of it. It is a fact. If you get it, you'll show it. If you don't show it, you haven't got it. Because it has to change you. It has to change you. It has to change the way you view other people. It has to change the way you forgive other people. It has to make you infinitely nicer than you are. Sorry, some of us started a bad way back. It doesn't make you perfect yet. It's being changed from one degree of glory to another by the Holy Spirit. But you are being changed. You are being given a holy bias. You are biased to holiness. 
And when you're not holy, you're uneasy because you're biased. Because something's happened and it's changing you from the inside out. Now the Antioch church people in the church have got it. It wasn't a church teaching, it's the individuals we're talking about. It's a community. People have got it. And when Barnabas came across this community, he could see it. And he recognised it because he'd got it and he'd been amongst people who got it in Jerusalem. We're not even going to linger, but I'll give you a few headlines of the sort of things that he would have seen. Some of them we've already talked about. Last week we did this one. Evidence of the grace of God. They accepted one another. This is something Steve talked about last week. This was a revolutionary group of people. There were social barriers coming down, cultural barriers coming down, Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor. It's fascinating. When you just read Acts 13.1, which we're not going to this week, just the leadership included a black man, along with uh, uh, the white or particularly Middle Eastern type uh, races, uh, Jews and Gentiles, high-born and low-born. That's just the leadership. You can read it for yourself. They were a real mixed bunch. Something was going on. People were accepting one another in Antioch. Hear this, because this is the truth, and we do need to hear it. We will treat other people, hear it, with the same measure of love acceptance and forgiveness that we, rightly or wrongly, think that we are receiving from God. It's a fact. You, let's make it more personal, will treat other people with the same measure of love, acceptance and forgiveness that you, rightly or wrongly, think you are receiving from God. For example, if I think God likes me when I'm good and hammers me the moment I step out of line, I will treat other people in the same way. I will treat them with criticism, I'll be a perfectionist and I'll be judgmental. Because I think God only likes me when I get everything right and, and I'm in fear and as soon as I get it wrong, he's down on me like a ton of bricks. I will behave to you in an unpleasant way. I will be high standards that I may not keep myself, but I'll be critical, judgmental, be quick to pick up flaws because it reassures me, because I'm full of my own flaws and I'm frightened about it and so I pick them up in other people. All sorts of things that come out of legalism are based on that false view of God. He does, he's not like that. He doesn't hammer you the moment you step out of line. That's not my God. That's not the God who sent Jesus. You're worshipping the wrong God. Get your theology right. Start reading the Gospels. Read Hebrews 1 verses 1 to 3. Jesus is perfect theology. He is the express image of the Father. You want to get your theology right? Look at Jesus. Read the opening verses of Hebrews. Test it out. And so then I will behave with grace to other people because I'm a, you can't make this up. You do it because you understand grace. You begin to show grace. Religious people are mean to others because in their own minds they're serving a mean God. And if you're serving a mean God, you, you're mean to other people. But we need to get clear how Christ accepted us. Look at a couple of these headline verses. I think they're going up on the same screen. Romans 15, verse 7. Accept one another, then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Accept one another on the same basis Christ accepted you. Ephesians 4.32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Whoa. You understand what you've been forgiven, you will forgive other people. Hallelujah. And you'll be kind and compassionate to one another. It's glorious. God's grace then creates a oneness between believers. A grace that flows out to others and begins to break down barriers. A 
That's what happened. Here's another quick one. We'll have to be quick. They were generous with their money. You can read it for yourself in in Acts uh, 11. I didn't read it this morning. Verses 29 to 30. We won't read it. But they quickly were generous in giving to the Jerusalem church where there was a real need. But here's a verse I will put up. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Thank you. For you know the grace of God. Sorry. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. When you know this grace message, when you get it, it's not that hard to be generous to other people. Generous with your personal resources, with your belongings, with your money. We know God loves us. We know he provides for us. We know he meets our needs. We know Jesus' riches are available to us. We are enjoying the grace of God, so personally and together, corporately, we want to be generous to other people, don't we? One of the evidences of the grace of God is that we give and we're generous. You'll find that both in Jerusalem and Antioch. Here's another one. They were totally Jesus-centred. I think, again, Steve referred to this. It says in verse um, 26, the disciples were called Christians first to Antioch. Now, this is an interesting sentence because... It's actually a phrase, a, a, a nickname, they were given by non-Christians. Apparently Antioch liked to give people nicknames. A bit like you get in some parts of the world, you get sort of, I suppose, Cockneys who like to use funny words, you know, a, a slang and all that sort of thing. I don't know, but they used to like to give people nicknames. And they gave them the nickname Christ Ones, the Christ Ones, the Christ Ones. But actually, it was picked up very quickly as an honourable name. And even, apparently, I'm, I'm no scholar, but even the Greek here is of the tone that this was an honourable advance. They were first called Christians at Antioch. So the Christians quickly said, this is a good name, we like this. But why did they give them the name the Christ ones? Come on, it must be obvious, mustn't it? They must have talked about Jesus Christ a lot. They were always on about Christ. Oh, here they come. You know, the Jesus people, the Jesus freaks. Have you ever realised that's actually a compliment? You know, the Jesus freaks, the Jesus one, the Christ ones, here they come. Well, they took it as an honourable title. This is where they were first called Christians. This is evidence, as it should be, that when you've understood the grace of God, you get pretty obsessed with Jesus. Because it's all about Jesus. And everything comes from Jesus Christ. And so actually it's all in him and through him. It's all to his glory. He's the name we honour. He's the one we worship. So you do go on about Jesus. Let's make sure we do that. It's good to go on about the church. It's good to go on about the Bible. It's good to have arguments about creation and evolution. They all have their place. But actually, you need to be known for talking about Jesus, really. Bottom line, because that's what it's really about. Oh, the Jesus ones. Jesus is the answer to everything, is it? Yeah, he is, really. Oh, whenever we talk to you, you end up talking about Jesus. Oh, do I really? Hallelujah. So, that's what we want. Their lives were changing. Here's another evidence of the grace of God. Their lives were changing. It says in verse uh, 21, so you just sort of have to read it carefully, the Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Now, turning to the Lord means that they turned from one way of life and turned to another way of life, what we call repentance. They stopped following their old way of life and followed Jesus. Romans 6.14 says this, For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. That's the next uh, scripture on that one. There we are, thank you. You Sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. Now here's a fascinating thing. 
Grace changes you. Now, I've already said that, but I'm going to linger on it for a couple of minutes before we finish. Grace changes you. They lived a new, different way because they were under grace. How does this work? They were free to obey God. They were no longer slaves to sin. So many of these people, and it was a pretty fruity life in the first century, with the paganism and the, the, the horrible sort of temple prostitution and the orgies that was all going on in most of these cities. And these people began to change. They really began to change in how they lived. They were following the Lord. Now what happens? Well, one part of the Bible, Titus 2, 11 and 12, tells us the grace of God teaches you to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live godly lives in this present age. He said, oh, hang on, here's the law bit. I knew we'd get round to it. No, I'm not getting round to it. Listen to me. The grace of God teaches you to say no. How does it work? I'll try and tell you, try and share it with you. You walk in the spirit and therefore you do not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. It's a positive, not a negative. You walk in the spirit and therefore you do not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Your life needs to come out of you walking in the spirit. It needs to come out of your relationship with Jesus. You need to be moving to the tune of heaven. I'm going to try and give you an illustration, which is a new one to me, but one I've found very helpful personally. I hope it helps you. Imagine a house that's got bunch of men living in it, group of guys living in it, all of a similar age. Some of them are stone deaf and some of them have got perfect hearing. But you cannot tell by looking at them. They haven't got great big hearing aids or anything. Just by looking at them, you can't tell who's deaf and who's not. Now in this house, in one room, in the living room, there's some really good music playing. Whatever music you like, make it the music of the story. It could be classical, it could be anything. But it's really nice, it's playing away. And a hearing man is in the room, sitting, tapping his hands, tapping his toes, clicking his fingers, whatever you do, nodding, sort of looking, well, you know, whatever they do. (laughs) No, he's not done. He's just thoroughly enjoying the music. You can tell he's having, his face looks calm and smiling. He's listening to the music. A deaf man enters the room and he thinks, that looks fun. He's obviously enjoying it. Can't hear a thing. So he sits in the chair and he tries to copy Well, after a little while, after a little while, he gets quite good because he's got a bit of sense of rhythm, so he's copying it. But inside he's thinking, I don't think this is much fun. What on earth is he here to do this for? But he seems, I suppose if I do it long enough, I might enjoy it, but I don't quite get it, really. It's supposed to be funny. He's, he's smiling. I don't know, smile as well, I suppose. <laughs> don't, don't like it much. And, but he does get quite good. One of the hearing men opens the door and looks in, hears the music, and sees two men thinks, oh, there's two hearing men there, both hear the music, just looks. Two men, pretty well doing the same things. He's not quite as, he's a better mover than he is, but yeah. Actually, they're radically different. One of them is moving in pleasure and joy to the music. The other one is copying and trying to get some pleasure out of it and work out what it is, but isn't hearing a thing. If you want to add, what are these? The hearing is real Christianity. The death is legalism. If you want to add a legalistic spin to it, someone will come and say to a deaf person, if you nod and tap enough, you'll hear the music eventually. That won't happen. You've got to hear the music and then you move to the music. You need your ears open. 
You need your ears up. If you nod and tap enough, you'll hear the music. No, you won't. You'll get happy in the end. No, you won't. You'll just feel more stupid and a bit more like, well, I sort of can do it, but I can't quite see why I'm doing it. You've got to hear the music. And, and it may look similar. And if he's a very good sort of sense of rhythm, maybe the deaf man can get as good as the hearing man or better. But it's nothing like that. You need to know Jesus. You need to be filled with the Spirit. You need to walk in the Spirit. You need to love him. And you move to the music of heaven. And the world around you doesn't understand it because it's a different tune. You don't move to the tunes they move to. You don't march to the tune. You want a military illustration. You don't march to that tune. You want a more slightly softened uh, illustration. You're not moving to their music. You're moving to the music of heaven. Do you understand that? That's how it works. You are changed from the inside out. Open your ears. Open your eyes. Hear what God is doing. Let his music shine on you. Let the spirit shine on you. Respond to his love. When you're struggling with sin, get back in relationship with him. Don't start putting yourself under some uh, legalistic thing. You need to get right. You need to, it's all out of relationship. It's all out of the Spirit, walking in the Spirit. And finally, quickly, they attracted others. You can find three verses in these few verses we read, 21, 24, 26, that tell you this church kept growing. This church kept growing because a grace life is an attractive life. Actually, grace makes you big-hearted and welcoming. Grace makes you big-hearted and welcoming. You don't feel threatened by other people. You're not sussing out, are they going to affect my position in the pecking order? Do they compromise my stand? Do, 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 do. No, no. If you're in grace, you are welcoming. And you understand that God can change the foulest. He changed you, so he can change them. So you're not, oh, whoa, whoa, I can't see them changing. Well, I can't see you changing. You know, Apostle Paul got saved. I think we might manage a few others like that, don't you? Basically, grace has that extra faith thing. You know, they're not like, whoa, they're not quite our sort. They're not tidy and clean and don't spit and don't swear, so there's only a little step over and they'll be like me. No, no, no. We're looking for the grace of God. Of course we are. We're looking for miracles. It's all a miracle. So grace makes you open-hearted. It makes you welcoming. Your conduct is coming out of your faith in the truth about Jesus. It's coming out of your response to what God's done for you. And you know he can do it for others. It's all of grace. Your relationship with Jesus is what's driving you. They can have a relationship with Jesus and it can drive them. And you can trust that it will work. You're not setting a big standard of rules. If we get too many like that, we won't be able to keep all our rules. No, no. We need people who come in and, and get to know Jesus and then please him. That's the only basis we've got any hope of. People who come to know him and please him. So essentially, grace makes you expectant of change, open to others, looking for the gospel to break out. You know, this grace is the, I know, this is the best thing there is in the world. Everybody needs this. So it affects how you behave, as of course it did there. Amen? Now we want to be soaked in the grace. John, you come up. We want to be a church soaked in the grace of God. So we're going to finish with a couple of songs and um, I'm going to ask God just to give me a bit of wisdom. I think we're going to have some opportunity for prayer for those 
and I, I just want to be a bit wise about what direction on that, because I think we all need this anyway. But um, do you understand it? Do you feel, if at the very least, like Steve's illustration, that your glasses have been cleaned up a bit this morning? Do you feel your glasses? Have you got something? I want you to get Let's stand together. I want you to get it. You've got to live, live it out. And let's pray while they just get their, them, themselves organised. Lord, we thank you for the wonderful grace of God. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you ever came and were prepared to die for us. You did go through that agony of the Garden of Gethsemane. You took it on. You bore my sin in your own body on the cross. Thank you, Jesus. And Lord, you rose in the power of an endless life. And now I am seated with you in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And when I die, it will be not absent from the body, present with the Lord. The Lord I already know and am one with. I will just walk out of this phase into the next phase. Because I've already got eternal life. And I already know Jesus. And I'm already in him. Oh Lord, help us to live and breathe the grace of God. Thank you Jesus. Let's sing. Thank you Lord.